Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Lundown, a podcast analyzing breaking news in architecture, housing, and planning produced by Open City, which is a charity dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible, and equitable. From now on, by signing up as an Open City friend from £5 a month, you can get early ad-free access to The Lundown and free tickets to live recordings throughout the year. Plus, you get all the other benefits of being an Open City friend too, including access to an exclusive program of year-round in-person events. Also, by donating, you're supporting independent journalism, keeping the London free and accessible for others, and directly helping Open City's wider educational work, particularly with children and young people from underrepresented communities. To sign up as an Open City friend and get early ad-free access to the London, click the link in the show notes or visit opencity.org.uk slash friends. Thank you. On with the show. Lambeth pulls the plug on controversial estate demolitions. London's David Chipperfield wins the Pritzker Prize, architecture's most coveted title. A UK-wide retrofitting programme to unlock £35 billion for the economy. And a new award-winning map spotlighting the women written out of London's built environment history. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Angus Lockyer. Angus is a historian and writer and presenter of the Audio Walking Tours series, Historicity. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Part W, an action group calling for gender equality in the built environment, has been named winner of the inaugural Research in Gender and Architecture Prize for Women's Work. The prize was awarded at the W Awards hosted by the Architecture Review and AJ last week, and it was awarded for a mapping project celebrating the contributions of women in shaping the capital. The map, designed by the Feminist Edit Collective, highlights built projects across London in which women have played a pivotal role either as designers and architects or as builders, campaigners and activists. The crowdsourced entries, reviewed by Part W and a panel of experts, help build a picture of how women are so often missed out of publications and educational resources and are not granted equal recognition of their work. Uh, The map includes Waterloo Bridge, which was built by a predominantly female workforce during World War II, Uh, The Shard, which was engineered by Roma Agrawal, and Covent Garden Market, which was saved from demolition in part by the campaigner Christina Smith, and then also Dawson's Height, which is designed by the architect Kate McIntosh, amongst many other landmarks. Manon Mollard, editor of the Architectural Review, said, quote, Part W's actions are critical for shifting the lines and building a more equitable profession. 
So, Angus, what do you make of Part W and Edit's approach to addressing complex relationships between gender, architecture and our built environment? Is the decision to represent these findings as a map an effective way of challenging patriarchal spatial systems? I love what they're doing um, and I love it for various reasons. First is the way they actually narrow down their list to 30. They crowdsource the original submissions. Let's find out, you know, 150, I think, was the initial places where we can see um, women working to build the city in ways that are not visible in the in the story. This is the counterpoint to the Pritzker, right, where you identify an individual who has done heroic work to bring a city into being. That's not how cities are built. So first they had this nominating process. They narrowed it down to 30. And if you look through their submissions, um, one of the things that's striking is the extent to which the work they're focusing on is largely collaborative. So, for example, fabrics within the Royal Festival Hall. And if you've been into the Royal Festival Hall, you know that the fabrics are part of that building and designed as part of that building. So it might be not you know, poured concrete, um, gleaming facades um, with a male architect's name on it. But so and, and there are much more concrete, forgive the phrase, you know, contributions as well. So there's a real acknowledgement in the map, which is great. You can download it. It's quite cheap and it's wonderful. And it has a walk in it, which I'll get to. But um, I, the map is a rich tribute. And just a starting point, I think they're going to do much more work. They're, they're doing some really interesting projects. Yeah, it is a stunning uh, piece of design. And it, it feels very engaging and welcoming. Anyone can uh, dive into it. Just um, it's It's got effectively a map of London, various labels on it. And then on the next page, you can just dive in and there's really clearly written excerpts for each building, immediately explaining the involvement of women, many I've never heard of, linked to these particular buildings. Uh, completely inspirational, you know, really important tool for any London architecture fan. Yeah, and, and from, two, from two perspectives, just in terms of producing the map. I mean, I think what maps do, which pros or our conversation today can't do quite as well, is um, make the city visible make the city visible in really interesting ways. So, you know, a city is at least a three-dimensional, if not four, five, whatever it is, experience, space. Um, and then we try and capture it in prose, which is, after all, a one-dimensional line of text. And it's often a thin thing. So, you know, with a map, we've got we've got 2D. They've also got a walk in there, which takes you through a lot of... We've done one of these on our podcast, a thing called Leisured City. But they, they go around large bits of the West End, the famous sites. And in each famous site, they're pointing to the fact that without women's work, this would not have happened. Um, so I think it's a wonderful corrective. I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do next. Yeah, I'm just looking at that bit now, that tour, really fab thing for listeners to try out. So Waterloo Station International Terminal. Now, Jane Priestman was the, on the client side. So she commissioned the building. Like, you know, that is a fantastic bit of architecture, but no great architecture happens without an inspirational client who's ultimately taking responsibility for the vision. Elsie Awusu, who worked on the set free access to the Green Park Underground Station. Like, that is an extraordinary bit of space used by... Londoners and international visitors a great deal. It makes a huge difference to the experience of visiting Green Park. And then it goes on, uh, the London Eye, Julia Barfield of Marks Barfield, uh, working on that. Like uh, A great opportunity to go out there and, and see these things firsthand and understand that. And also to, to, to pay more attention. I think, you know, often when we talk about architecture, we see the shot in AJ or, you know, a beautifully framed, um, well-lit shot um, of a building, which is not a building being used. <laughs> and we all know this, but, you know, the architectural conversation can sometimes be about a kind of monumental view, even when we acknowledge it. But I think a map like this in as much as it's encouraging you to look more closely to pay attention right not just to a building as a piece of architecture but as a building as a working space 
and then saying to create something this complex, you need the kind of collaboration you've just mentioned, Merlin. Yeah, yes, the patron, yes, the commissioner, yes, the. I mean, all the way through. So labor in the built environment is, I think, another contribution of this. Well, while we talk about architects, we often think in terms of you know the creative genius, which puts it in the art category. But architecture is a practical profession, which requires collaborative work, collaborative labor. So like Part W, you're also involved in creating walking tours or audio tours. Um, you're a historian. Um, you know, clearly, you're very interested in research practice. Um, you know, how do you approach creating your own tours? And also, you know, are you building in some of this Part W approach? Because, you know, it's award winning and clearly they're onto something. Yeah, I, I wish we'd done it more in London. We tried to do it a bit. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the reason I'm so excited about this is because it echoes some of what I try to do as a historian and my friends do as well is when you're a historian, you have these big frameworks, you know, you have national history or the history of a city. But, um, you know, when I was living in London, I now live in the States, but when I was living in London, I never felt that I was living in London. I was living in a particular postcode with a particular shop down the street. And then I walked a certain way, you know, there's all kinds of notions of, you know, the triangles in which we homework and the third space in between. Um, so I think this speaks much more closely to our experience living in cities. And then if you're going to understand a city, you have to get to that level. Like, how are these things connected in this way? You have to get local and you have to also walk, I think, which is why, you know, our podcast takes the form that it does. It's um, us walking around a city, me talking about it, adding a few more quotes in, but, but saying, look, there's a particular pace at which you can appreciate the city. And, you know, cities now, given their size, I mean, London is, I can't remember the current figure, but say roughly 10 million um, you need the infrastructure. You need to move people around, even if Hidalgo and the 15-minute city is becoming a topic of conversation. But um, at the end of the day, we don't live on the tube. We live in particular spaces, and we need to pay attention in that way and to appreciate, again, I'd say the labor that goes into not just building them, maintaining them, um, enabling the other kinds of work that go on in there or the other kinds of life that go on in there. So I think this is enormously exciting and, and kind of reminds me to stay true to my creed as a historian, which is to pay attention, you know, stop just going to abstraction, stop going to big things all the time, which you've probably heard is my tendency. But, you know, you need, walk the streets, look really closely at what you see in front of you and don't just put it in a box marked, you know, famous architect number 54. Um, we need something better than that. London architect David Chipfield has been named winner of the prestigious Pritzker Prize. The award comes more than 15 years after the last British winner, which was Richard Rogers in 2007, uh, and was reported in the AJ, which ran an exclusive interview. Uh, known globally for his pared-back modernist style, Chipperfield was awarded the Pritzker Prize for being, quote, assured without hubris. Judges also praise the 69-year-old for his avoidance of trendiness uh, while being understated but transformative. They said, quote, We do not see an instantly recognisable David Chipperfield building in different cities, but different David Chipperfield buildings designed specifically for each circumstance. Some of Chipperfield's famous projects include the refurbishment of the Neuss Museum in Berlin and the restoration of Procurati Vecchi in Venice. Uh, that's in uh, San Marco Square, this big old beautiful building. In the UK, Chipperfield is better known for his BBC Scotland headquarters, uh, the Turner Contemporary Art Gallery in Margate, uh, the recent restoration of the Royal Academy and the Hepworth Wakefield Gallery. 
controversial plans by Chipperfield for a new Chinese embassy were recently refused by councillors and the mayor of London last year, something we also covered here on Lundown. Um, commenting on his win, Chipperfield said, quote, I take this award as an encouragement to continue to direct my attention not only to the substance of architecture and its meaning, but also to the contribution that we make as architects to address the existential challenges of climate change and societal inequality. Good words. So, Angus, the architecture industry is quite famously full of awards. Uh, we've certainly covered a few on London over the years um, and prizes as well. Uh, what is the Pritzker Prize and why is it such a big deal to win it? It's the big one, right? Um, it's, it's an interesting award. It was set up, I think it's been running for 50 years now. The money came from the family... Pritzker. It's named after them. Uh, they got their money from Hyatt Hotels. So we're turning kind of, you know, lots of concrete monstrosities into lauded cultural capital, which is how prizes work. After all, that's a little bit cynical. Um, you get 100,000, which is a chunk of cash. It's equivalent to the Nobel. It's meant to be the architecture's Nobel. And I think it's turned out that way. You also interestingly get a medallion um, with a design by Lewis Sullivan, famous Chicago architect, inventor of the of the skyscraper, if you like. So it is a big deal. It's the kind of announcement that everybody waits for. And it acknowledges also maybe two more small points that architecture is an international profession. Um, some of the awards are a bit more nationally specific, I think, and they never reinforce local conversations, but the reminder that actually architecture, at least modern architecture, has always been a global practice. And in the last few years, it's seen a turn away from you know, the high modernists and their inheritors, I think, towards people who are like Chipperfield, very much invested in locality, in sight, in conversations between present and past and so on. So, again, another tipping point, maybe, you know, Chipperfield is certainly the last three winners have all been known for their refusal of a modernist credo to just wipe the slate clean and build something formal and beautiful. Yeah, and it's certainly interesting just to look at the list of the people who have won it, um, it to get a feel for what this prize is. I mean, it really is like uh, the greatest of the greats of architecture, although concerningly quite a male-dominated list, which surely is not representative at all um, of, of where talent and um, application comes from. But from the UK perspective, you've got James Sterling in there, um, big UK architect, famous for things like Tate Britain Extension, um, got Zaha Hadid, uh, the Aquatic Centre, uh, Norman Foster, um, Richard Rogers, and then David Chipperfield's kind of up there. So like those are like you know, internationally the five UK winners of it. But then also you know, looking back, uh, people like Philip Johnson, Ian Pei, Frank Gehry, Aldo Rossi, uh, Rem Coolhouse. Uh, you know, it, it really is the kind of like the Hall of Fame. Uh. And then because uh, um, I meant to be or was originally a Japanese historian, suddenly a wave of Japanese architects. Um, beginning, I think, with Tange in the 90s, maybe. But in the last 10 years, what, three Japanese architects and an increasing number of women, six women out of 50 now, although uh, Hadid was the first and that took 30 years. So maybe things are changing, one can hope. Yeah, there's certainly they need. There's a lot of work that needs to be done to redress uh, the balance and how the prize is given out. Now, just focusing in on Chipperfield's work in particular, um, he's famously worked on revamping many historic buildings uh, here in London. Uh, listeners can go and check out the Royal Academy's Six Burlington Gardens. Um, this project created an amazing pathway through that allows you to see the Royal Academy schools, something that had not really been open to the public. Uh, before and also just connects together two buildings that were bizarrely not connected before. It's a pretty amazing bit of uh, London architecture. Uh, he also did retrofit of Mice van der Rohe's new National Gallery, uh, which is a really cool uh, building. Um, as a historian, Angus, what do you make of the way these interventions in our historic cities have been delivered? He's an interesting guy. Um, another wrinkle to the thing, he got his start in Japan in the 80s, um, largely doing shop fit-outs. 
And then he got, uh, I believe, starting in 97 with the Noyce Gallery. And famously, he was introduced by, by Angela Merkel um, at one point as one of our famous German architects. So most of his early career was not here. So it took the international recognition by the places that were investing, let's say, in a way to rethink architecture. The gallery in, in Germany took 12 years in total. 12 years of work, work on site, right? Because when you're dealing with interventions in a historic landscape, you're not wiping the slate. You can't just, you know, ship in the struts and all that kind of stuff. I'm obviously not an architect here, so my language is a bit um, compromised. But his insistence is that architecture has to respond to place in the first instance. All places have histories. One of the most interesting of his projects actually is in St. Louis in the, in the US, a public library, um, where he put in uh, the sun in summer can be pretty intense. So it's a public facility. It is not monolithic, right? It has various wings because people want to disappear into the stacks. They want to find places to read. It's a library after all. And he's covered it with a copper screen, which both filters the sunlight, but also kind of makes the museum disappear from outside. Um, and he's talked about this in terms of no architecture at all. Mm. So um, there are places, as in Berlin, where he was dealing with a monument and he had to work out how to do that and how to have a conversation with it. So it's not a repudiation of modernism, but it's also not an understanding of the built environment that is riven by conflict, you know, either either this or this. Well, one of the things I think is interesting about Chipperfield, and I think I, I will I will claim this as being a London characteristic and the fact that he's a London architect, is um, his best buildings are public buildings, right? And that is, it kind of recognises the fact that the best architecture, what I think is true architecture, is public, you know, civic. That is what really stands the test of time. And for someone to get an award for this, um, for me, that is all very fitting. Uh, but it does bring us on to another public building, uh, which you mentioned in the introduction. That was um, what happened last year for David Chipperfield Architects. Their plans to rework the former Royal Mint into the new Chinese embassy, a building that was intended to have a, a public-facing culture centre. Um, that was rejected uh, by the local authority, Tower Hamlets Council. It was quite a, it was quite a big story. It had proven to be quite a highly contentious project, uh, which saw local residents and campaigners protest against the development. Uh, some were referencing China's repression of the Uyghur people uh, in their in their demands against it being built on that site. Um, Angus, in your podcast, you talk a lot about power dynamics in the city and how it manifests itself through architecture. You know, here we've got a Pritzker Prize winning architect now, uh, but they were working on this really prestigious project for quite a high profile client, con controversial client, some. Um, what does that you know, Chipperfield's Chinese embassy project tell us about that role that architecture plays in cementing or opposing existing power dynamics and politics in society? Again, I want to reframe it. I don't think it's cement or oppose. I mean, if you're an architect, I, I have the joy of being a writer, which means I'm accountable to nobody and I can pretty much do what I want. But as an architect, you're in a collaborative profession. Not just that, you're not just collaborating with you know, other architects or your contractors or whatever it is, you're collaborating with politicians. I mean, the, we all know this, the landscape is incredibly complex. So the question is, how do you navigate? How do you exploit the space you're given to stay true to who you are? I don't know Chipperfield's story on this. I don't know why he accepted the, the commission in the first place. And I don't know the timeline, which is enormously important because both the Chinese regime, the current Chinese regime under Xi, and the public discourse around it and the opposition to it and the Uyghur issue specifically, um, how that in timeline intersects. Because of course now um, decisions on things like this and on development projects are subject, are hostage almost to contingency, right? And we see this again and again and again. One can maybe 
draw an interesting comparative story with the American embassy relocation story. Because the original American embassy, now lauded by, by Saarinen in Grosvenor Square, which is being redeveloped, of course, as a luxury hotel, was not popular at the time. But the UK was very much a junior partner in a Cold War alliance with a great power. So you can't say no. Similarly with the Vauxhall project, which I think is a more successful piece. But, you know, I'm declaring my biases. So in terms of the Chinese embassy, we're at a tipping point in public perception of China. And again, largely because of activism around the Uyghur issue, which there should be. I mean, the story is absolutely appalling, and there's now good investigative work coming about about it. But in a, in a climate like that, and at a moment when, because at the end of the, the day, this is a geopolitical thing, right? Um, you know, at the end of the Cold War, in the, in the last 30 years, um, we've been dealing with a geopolitical landscape in which it's not quite clear, well, it is now, but Russia went through a period of this. It's not quite clear what China will be. And we, you know, we we don't know enough. We see it from a great distance. We report in a particular way. What does it say about the bigger picture? Um, it says that it's difficult to do a job as an architect because a project like this requires the kind of state funds that are generated from sometimes dubious regimes. I mean, look at look at building in the Middle East um, by the Japanese architects who have all won the Pritzker. You know, many of them in the 80s and the 90s when the Japanese economy went south, they took their practice overseas. That's where they did, uh, especially the big projects, the master plan projects, um, the city building. Look at Neom now in, Sa in Saudi Arabia and the number of quite famous names that's pulling in. Well, architecture probably is the most capitally intensive art form anywhere on the planet. So, um, But when you look at the Chinese embassy... Yeah, if it wasn't David Chipperfield, it could be any number of architects on a project like that, right? You know, there were other people who would certainly love to, you know, they would, I, I expect would take on the commission. But here in particular, we know David Chipperfield's very good at these public um, public spaces. We know that this embassy was due to have a, um, a cultural center, which would be a kind of public interface, which not all embassies do. Some do, and it works really well. Um, is there the kind of idea that a really great architecture and a really great public space can somehow be transformative. We know that in architecture, there is this idea of the radical transformative power of architecture. In this particular instance, is that a bit fanciful? Or is it, you know, are we actually missing out on an amazing David Chipperfield-designed cultural centre which could somehow create a emancipatory discourse uh, for, <laughs> for people around the world? No. Um, sorry, that was a very brief answer to a very long and complicated question. Um, I think any time I hear radically transformative potential of space, you have to say it depends, right? And you have to look at, uh, you've mentioned this a couple of times, the context within which we're seeing this new space. It wouldn't have been a civic space. And the Chinese regime does not operate according to notions of civic participation that are familiar in the West. So we have to kind of provincialize ourselves a little bit and understand where or how, where that space is coming from and how it would operate. I mean, China's already made um, gestures in this direction. Famously, it set up Confucius Institutes um, within universities, which are highly problematic because they're subject to huge oversight, which is you know, antagonistic to most university um, ways of believing in themselves. Um, but this is not unprecedented too. The Germans set up the Goethe Institute for exactly the same reason. We have the, you know, the French equivalents. We have the British Council, which still holds up mugs of tea in Tokyo when they should be in cups. Um, and at that point, we're not talking about civic, right? We're talking about soft power. We need a different vocabulary to think about these things. 
However, and the caveat, as always, once you create a space like this, the important point is not the space itself, but the uses to which it's put. And one can have imagined this project going forward, Chipperfield doing a beautiful job, and it's in a very interesting site already in terms of the kind of clash of styles there and thereabouts. And it's right next to the tower, of course. It's already a public site. One can see, you know, 24-7 demonstrations for as long as the Wago issue exists. Um, so who knows? Again, stay tuned. New research indicates that an extra £35 billion a year could be generated from the retrofit of the UK's old buildings. This was reported in The Guardian this week. Uh, The report, commissioned by the National Trust, Historic England and leading property organisations, found that improving the energy efficiency of historical buildings could not only contribute to the economy and create new jobs, but could also reduce carbon emissions from buildings by 5% each year uh, and also make homes warmer and cheaper to run along the way. Um, UK buildings responsible responsible for one-fifth of the nation's greenhouse gas emissions and historical buildings which make up nearly a quarter of all homes account for a significant proportion. The report claims a national retrofit programme could add an extra £35 billion to the UK's annual economic output. Uh, This is through construction activity and the resulting benefits also for the tourism and hospitality industries. Who doesn't like visiting a beautifully restored bit of heritage? The chair of Peabody, one of the report's backers, said, quote, making these buildings energy efficient will stimulate spending in the construction industry, support about 290,000 jobs in supply chains and boost heritage related tourism and hospitality. So, Angus, uh, what's it all about? What role has retrofit in the conversion of historic buildings played in the history of a city like London so far? And why could a new retrofit boom uh, have some really interesting impacts for our built environment and urban culture? My sense is that what we're now calling retrofit is the emergence of something new. And I'll tr- so I'll try and simplify. And this is kind of erasing a lot of complexity. Most of London's built environment is historic. I mean, first point, one doesn't like putting something in a, oh, this is historical and therefore heritage and should be preserved, but we can keep on doing the modernist thing anywhere else. Um, so most of London's built environment is historic. But in terms of conscious conservation of old properties, um, up until maybe 10 years ago, that's the vocabulary we we were using, right? It wasn't retrofit. It was a, it wasn't about technical. It wasn't about carbon. It was about conservation of something that was historically valuable, and you know this is part of why the podcast we're working on at the moment is it, it, it insists on history. How have cities got to be the way they are? If you imagine cities as a blank slate, you get every city in the world wrong, including Brasilia, which was a blank slate city. Um, but the point about retrofit is in the last 10 years, we've shifted. So if, if up until 10 years ago, we were basically creating heritage or inventing heritage, you know, you don't go out there and find it. You take something, you fit it up and you make it pretty and you put a National Trust sign on it or whatever. So things get identified as significant historically um, and retrofitted. But what we've got now is the carbon agenda. So this is all, it's not about cultural value, although that is acknowledged. It's about, you know, basic ecological calculation, basic economic you know, numbers and things like that. And I think the report is a step forward. I think maybe what we're seeing with it is, is the acknowledgement because the partners on the report are really interesting as well, right? It's National Trust and Historic England led, but it's got the Grosvenor Estate in there. It's got Peabody in there. So it's not just the usual suspects speaking out for heritage. It's the way we build is wrong. I mean, even we're, we're off to Tokyo tomorrow to record a series on Tokyo. And... Um, Foster is now in the place of replacing a post-war concrete steel-framed department store with an entirely wooden building. So it's going to be the first wooden building in Tokyo. And the, the conversation 
even in Japan, which has a real teardown, build high culture, which still goes on, is beginning to shift towards, oh, how do we see buildings not just as a one shot, but how do we see them linking back? How do we see you know carbon embodied over the whole life cycle from production through? And, and that kind of calculation, I think, is a new thing, which is also generating the vocabulary, right? So now we're talking about retrofit, but it, we're, we're muddy on this. Are we talking about retrofit, reuse, revamp? Lambeth Council has paused its controversial plans to demolish Central Hill and two other landmark post-war estates after a critical report recommended a fundamental reset to the way it handles these long-running projects. This was reported in the AJ earlier this week. The local authority, which had chosen the acclaimed social housing architects PRP to draw up a master plan for the demolition of the 450 home estate near Crystal Palace, said it was now planning to hold further consultation with residents, quote, looking at different viable options ranging from refurbishment all the way through to full redevelopment, end quote. The council had planned to knock down the Rosemary Sternstert and Lambeth Borough Architects Department designed estate where homes are plagued with damp, mould and accessibility problems, replacing it with 1,200 new properties. It's a topic covered many times by Lundown and the AJ before. Uh, Central Hills even featured in Open City's architecture cycle tours. Uh, it also featured in one of our Pocket London printed tour guides. And it was the subject of a major AJ feature last year with residents on the front page of the magazine. Residents have long argued against its demolition, claiming that the homes on the complicated sloping site are structurally sound and simply need proper refurbishment and upkeep. PRP was first up, asked to draw up plans to renovate the Central Hill Estate back in 2014. Uh, then in 2017, the council decided this was too expensive and said it wanted to redevelop the site. Uh, one building on the estate, True Love House, was demolished in November 21. Uh, the Central Hill Estate project has now been put on ice, while proposals for Cressingham Gardens and the Fenwick Estate, uh, where master planning work has not yet begun, have also been stopped. The move comes after a review by crossbench peer Bob Kerslake last November, found a series of problems with Homes for Lambeth, the council's troubled house building arm. The review recommended a, quote, fundamental reset to the way Lambeth handled the redevelopments. So, Angus, what's this all about? Uh, why has the fate of Lambeth's acclaimed post-war housing estate, such as Central Hill, become such a flashpoint over the past decade? And why is this latest move so significant? I was reading up, actually, on the Kerslake report, which you just referenced, which was released last November. And what struck me, um, and yeah, I'm a historian, is always the detail. So Central Hill doesn't sound like it's the same as the other estates in the first instance. It's a much more mobilised community. It's a much more interesting piece of architecture, maybe. But also it's this particular local authority, right? We've got the kind of, I mean, some people have called it Blairite, Homes for Lambeth. On the one hand, separate from the council, doing their own thing, operating according to a very particular vision. And it, I mean, the real issue here is that not just at Central Hill, it sounds as if trust has completely broken down. And when you lose trust between an administrator and the residents they're meant to be serving, then any proposal is going to kind of run pretty quickly into the quicksand. So I think it's a very specific problem, but it's an indicator of wider problems too, yeah. Now, one thing that's interesting, if we look at these particular sites, and it's often pointed out by, by the housing activists, um, they all appear to be quite high value spots. OK, so like all of Lambeth is, is very expensive to rent a house in or to buy a house in, obviously. Um, but if you think of, you know, an estate right next to Brockwell Park, you know, that's kind of like prestige spot. You know, kind of somewhat you think, oh, OK, that that being redeveloped. Interesting. Or Central Hill, yeah, Central Hill on the overground, the orange line. So obviously like witnessing a kind of surge of people who've uh, come to live there because of the new great connectivity and then oh yeah an estate there to be redeveloped uh, you know th th yeah, there's something in that but there's the point the housing activists also make 
is is that um, what these buildings have always needed all along, rather than demolition and rebuilding, is proper maintenance and refurbishment. Okay, why is it, Angus, so common for local authorities like Lambeth to controversially demolish and rebuild estates rather than just maintain them properly uh, all along, or take a kind of repair and retrofit approach? It strikes me that something about this is ideology, right? It's easier to try and wipe the slate clean, even though you never can. Then we're getting very quickly into budgets and local authority budgets. And um, maintenance is always a, I mean, the great example I always thought of, the one I always bring up, which is on a different continent, it's in Seattle. Um, the new Seattle Art Museum, which was built downtown, is between two big avenues. And so they built two entrances onto it. And of course, you can get people to fund the building. You can't get people to fund the staff or cleaning the toilet up by the second entrance on Second Avenue. So within about a year of that, it's a beautiful building opening. Um, half of it wasn't quite working as, as designed because simply the budget hadn't been put in place. I don't know if that's the case here, but it strikes me that maintenance is always one of those things it's, it's tempting to put off. And you, you know this about buildings, right? Unless you're doing regular cycles. I don't know if that's the case here, but I think for local authorities, when local authorities have no funding... And when funding is being taken away from them and when a lot of the existing, I mean, the big story about social rent in this in this country, right, is with right to buy a source of income, um, which was low social rents, as they should be, uh, was taken away. And actually, the monies realized from those sales went straight back into the Treasury, not back to the local council. So I'm guessing there's a complicated story about local finance. There's some very uh, easy, quick fit solutions being seized on. And then there's the incentive to collaborate with private developers, because as you were pointing out, you know, it's an extraordinary site, but it's a low build estate and putting a few more floors and making more of them private. That's a that's a sounds like a winning proposition, at least on the one page you're going to read before the council meeting. Well, that is a point about the Central Hill was designed as a kind of good neighbour in a kind of in the leafy neighbourhood of Victorian villas. And the, the architectural logic was that the, the, the blocks wouldn't be too high, that they would sit below the tree line of the established trees within the area. If you think about the context of it, in the context of London, like in the post-war era, um, a lot of the houses, which are now highly coveted, like whether they're sort of Georgian or Victorian kind of mansions, vertical townhouses, uh, were extremely dilapidated, you know, and the um, you know, maintenance, you know, the money to do it had, had gone. Uh, these buildings were wrecks. A lot of them were pulled down. A lot of them, people were scratching their head and thinking, was it ever worth pouring the enormous amounts of money into them to sort of bring them up to standard? Um, but then, you know, over the decades it happened uh, and these Victorian streets of homes which require an awful lot of maintenance to keep them going but then suddenly oh it's an estate for decades that hasn't had the, the amount of money but every other building all the buildings next to it uh you know being painted maybe every seven years maybe every 10 or 15 years uh you know a careful amount of thought has been put into the maintenance that's required of it and yet local authorities curiously because of the situation they've been in just you know haven't been able to do that and then there's this kind of spurious excuse that these buildings are unmaintainable which is just balmy considering that everything right next to it has been maintained at the same time, if not enhanced with ridiculous argers and open plan ground floor wood burners, all kinds of like stupid rural affectations right in the centre of London. And the block next to it that was futuristic and could have been maintained hasn't. Yeah. Well, you, yeah, you've said it. Now, conservationists and campaigners will be celebrating a sort of reprieve for these estates right now. You know, certainly, uh, we've campaigned on this issue. We've covered it a lot. Yeah, it seems to be a positive story. But another side of this story is that Lambeth's house building initiative has hit a dead end. You know, Lambeth, they've got massive housing waiting lists like every other London borough. Um, their big house building initiative 
is that's where does it go? Um, we know it takes years for large scale house building projects to move forward at all to get to this kind of stage. Um, is this review, therefore, on the other side of the hand, uh, really bad news for people in Lambeth in housing need? I want to be optimistic here. Um, well, I'm going to stop at being pessimistic. If they'd redeveloped the estate, they would have added two units to a total of 318 on the estate. I went and looked up the numbers. So two units, no. Um, but as you point out, the waiting list in Lambeth, I think it's 30,000 households at the moment on the waiting list. You know, there is a crisis in Lambeth, as there is in every other London borough. Behind that, of course, and the point of the review was to say, is the way in which the council has set up or initially set up Homes for Lambeth, is it appropriate? Is it is it fit for the job it's meant to be doing? And the answer was no. Um, part of that was inter-Nissan warfare. Part of it was Homes for Lambeth seems to have just gone off the rails. Um, so I'm not sure going ahead with uh, incompetent, is that too strong? Governing authority or, I mean, the, the direct delivery record of HFL is appalling you know, by by any indication. And they've had better success in other channels. So I think it's a kind of variegated picture, but I'm, I don't think this one decision is would, would ever have made a drop in the bucket of the 30,000 on the waiting list. You know, even if you look at all six estates, they were going to add 40 to the existing 914. And I think when you're faced by a problem, the scale of the problem we have in terms of social housing in this country, which is... You know, local conditions, big economic ideologies. It's. A, I don't think this one decision is a is an entirely bad news story. Maybe it is time to sit back and say, okay, how do we, how do we do this properly? Maybe it's a tipping point. Okay, so um, these proposed demolitions of the sites, obviously we've been talking about Central Hill, but also Cressingham Gardens. Um, they've been met with fierce criticism and pushback from the residents, but also housing activists. So uh, the eminent architect Kate McIntosh has been a big voice on this. Also, the Green Party London Assembly member Sean Berry. Is it fair to see this latest U-turn by Lambeth Council as a kind of win for activism and campaigning? Uh, or is that a bit grand? Is that a bit fanciful? And this is actually more about economic pressures. Um, and they, they, as we're seeing, are, are killing off a lot of public sector projects. Both, which is the answer to most of these things, right? I mean, it has to be both. Unless you get visibility through activism, you can get away with murder. It seems to me that you need to mobilise coalitions. You need to keep, um, especially given media cycles, what are we going to pay attention to? We're going to pay attention to impressive coalitions which join you know, local residents, activists, faces uh, like Kate McIntosh. I mean, who, who better can you get to talk about the history of post-war social housing on the one hand? But the raw truth is, at the end of the day, is numbers. It is budgets. To make something like the, uh, this go ahead, they've got to get a little bit of money from the mayor. Right. And one of the stipulations now for a GLA grant, as far as I understand it, is that you have to ballot the residents. Any ballot for those residents was going to have said no. So they're between a rock and a hard place economically. But then within the kind of economic envelope, if you like, there's all kinds of places for maneuver. I mean, this is you know, old fashioned organizing tactics. How do you assemble the coalition? Who do you speak to? How do you make the decision? Um, one of the interesting things about uh, the Kerslake Review, which is a fabulous document, it's on the Lambeth site, right, is the way it navigates. How do you navigate the currents of these things? On the one hand, big macro forces still with a government that refuses to invest properly in this. On the other, very local kind of currents of animosity, coalition and so on. In Historicity, you discuss some of the big pushes towards house building in the capital and what it means for communities in them. How does this development in Lambeth fit into that wider story of London's housing provision? Uh, are these post-war estates stuck in a past vision of the future or are they key to unlocking a better present for everyone? The big question, right. So how, how much time do we have? Um, I mean, first, one of the things... Uh, 
just to mention the podcast briefly here is historicity is very much how did cities get to be the way they are. And one of the interesting things here is uh, not just about Lambeth and London, but it's a global moment, right? I mean, all the moments of, of social housing provision have been global and influenced each other in that way. Um, I've been thinking a lot about some of your listeners might not be familiar with Tom Nairn, a great Scottish nationalist and author who died recently. And so there's been a lot of retrospectives. He has this idea of Eucania. Uh, which is a wonderful word. Um, so this is a very big picture, very broad brush, which is kind of what, what our podcast does. But um, his sense here is that we never really had a modern revolution, right? Every bright new dawn in British history has somehow been folded into the existing still very feudal way of thinking about property at the end. And that's, I think, a, a point worth underlining. We're talking as if this is about housing, which I think it is for everybody in the room now, probably for your listeners too. But for many of the people making decisions, their primary reference is the market, is property rights, and is value of that property. Um, so to get back to Lambeth and London and social housing provision, I think that if you trace it over time, you see this kind of, wouldn't it be lovely if we were actually a social democracy would be the tagline for that. But then in the way that housing has been provided, um, whether it's at the, at the council level or more local um, initiatives, um, you keep getting retrenchment from that back to our comfort zone, which is, you know, hierarchical tip your cap, you know, don't disturb the property value. Fantastic. We're now on to the culture section. It's an opportunity to talk about upcoming cultural highlights and built environment and architecture in London. Um one thing on our radar, there's an exhibition of mobiles. Uh, it's called Into the Woods. Uh, they're created by Finn Harper, who's the director of Open City, and it's taking place at Host of Leighton, really cool art gallery. Um, show runs until the 12th of March. Um, it's a great chance to check out some kinetic artworks. Um, over at the V&A, West London, um, there's the Ramadan Pavilion. Uh, it's by the Ramadan Tent Project, designed by Shahid Salim. Uh, it's purpose-built architecture, structure, and showpiece of creative art and design to celebrate the holy month of Ramadan. I've not had a chance to go down there and experience it firsthand, but it looks stunning. Very cool piece of architecture uh, by a very great London architect. Thanks, Angus. It's been an immense pleasure to feature you on London this week. Where can listeners go to stay up to speed on your work, your writing, uh, your social media handles? What, what, where should they direct their attention? Um, the podcast, um, which is available on all good podcast platforms, all podcast platforms, I believe at this point, is called Historicity. So history with an I and then city straight on. Um, easy enough to find. Uh, we've, got a mo we've got a bit of a social presence on Instagram. We're publishing here and there. And so on Insta, you can find us on at, at Walk Historicity. And we're hoping actually Tokyo is a is a very kinetic city. So we're thinking we, we need to go to TikToks next. And this is the, the next Historicity experience. The next audio tour you're creating is... Is Tokyo. And yeah, we've got nine episodes on London arranged in three walks. And we're going to do the same in Tokyo. So four times the size, but it gets the same budget. We're very, we're very democratic. We previewed a few on the Open City channels. Hopefully listeners have come across them already. Um, absolutely fantastic work. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City in association with the London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and a ton of other benefits while supporting independent journalism, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring, Merlin Fulcher, Rachel Capel, Ella Jessel and me, Phineas Harper. 
Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.